0: Good morning. Welcome to North Shore Church again this morning. And this morning I have scripture and prayer for us. This morning's scripture is Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Let's pray. Father God, perfect, all-powerful, Lord, we continue our praise of you. We honor you with our voices and now in prayer. God, hear our petitions and our praises of you. Lord, help us to hear and know your will through your word, your holy scripture that was given to us by you, the scripture that is spiritually discerned by those who have been given their life through your son Jesus your sons and your daughters. Father God, help us to not be like the cities we just heard you speak about. Lord, help us to retain our love for you. Help us, Lord, to keep our focus on your great works and the love that you have for us. Lord, forgive us our sins. We are weak and frail. We are drawn to worldly things and we put them ahead of you. Lord, we ask and we confess these sins now. forgive us in Jesus name we ask these things father God we desire your will to be done help us to see it and to do it Lord we pray for revival here in our city start with us we ask Lord teach us to pray we have an upcoming prayer weekend coming to North Shore when we can learn about this but help us even today help us to pray well in your name Lord you have promised that prayer can move mountains, and it can change hearts. Help us to be the faithful that you will use for this purpose. We pray now for the needs of this church. We pray for Maggie Cherubini's husband, Nick, for a recovery from a surgery and for other serious health issues that he has. And also we pray for Nellie Paris's husband, Joe, battling a foot infection. And we pray for Barb Smith, who has serious back pain, and we pray that the treatments that she has taken will work quickly. We also pray for this, for this church and all in this church that a spirit of family would continue to grow, and that we would seek each other, we could seek each other out and we would share in our pains and we would also share in our joys with our brothers and sisters. I pray that each one of us would radiate the love of Christ to each other And now, this morning, as Duncan comes forward to preach your word, Father God, I pray that you would enable him. Give him strength, give him clarity of mind, and give him just the assurance, Lord, that he is doing your will here and that his message is that that you have prepared for us to hear. I pray your blessings on that. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Before we begin, a new series of messages in a couple of weeks, we want to look a little bit today at one of the most treasured sayings of Jesus at the end of chapter 11. Any sincere believer has felt the great comfort that these wonderful promises can bring to you, especially when you are feeling down and heavy laden. The key verses that we'll look at ultimately is, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We want to look at that, but to be honest with you, in order for us to do that, we have to look at the broader context in which those verses fit. What many believers don't realize is that these precious truths come as Jesus is concluding some of his most weighty theological teaching in the Gospel. These very much loved verses come at the end of Matthew 11, and Jesus uses them as a very practical application to what he said, revealing the tension between, on the one hand, responsibility of humanity for their sins, and on the other, God's overriding sovereign control over humanity's sins. It was not my intention to get heavy this week. I really wanted to do communion devotional on 28 through 30, and I saw that It just doesn't work because you don't really get what 28 to 30 is saying unless you look at the rest of the chapter, and the rest of the chapter is loaded down with all these heavy theological truths. Jesus is teaching in the second half of chapter 11 that Andy read. All of that is to be seen as a unit. In the first four verses of what Andy read, Jesus assumes his role as judge here. We know that because he passes sentence on a particular group of Jews. He does this by literally cursing three cities in which he'd spent a whole lot of time and done a whole lot of ministry. Jesus, as many of you know, spent most of his three years of ministry, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, in Galilee. He's called a Galilean. Jesus and many of his disciples hailed from Galilee, which is that region around the Sea of Galilee. After being rejected in his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee, early on in his ministry, Jesus adopted Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, about 20 miles away from Nazareth, as his home and as his basis for ministry. In Matthew chapter 9, Matthew's talking about Capernaum. And he says, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So Capernaum is his own city, Jesus' own city. It was a place where Jesus knew the people very well. He'd spent a ton of time there. Only a few miles from Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee are two other cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida. So in these three cities, as Matthew tells us in chapter 11 verse 20, Jesus did many mighty works. And if you read through Matthew, but all the gospels, you see that many of his miracles were done in this region. He healed a centurion servant. He healed Peter-in-law's mother. He cast out a bunch of demons. He did a whole lot of ministry here. No other cities in Israel had the kind of exposure to Jesus and familiarity with Jesus that these cities had in and around the Sea of Galilee. And yet we need to read again that these Burning words of judgment he has for these three cities. Verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus leaves no doubt whatsoever that the responses that should have come in response to his own teaching in these cities, his many mighty works, is that they should have repented of their sin. Now, he's primarily speaking of their unbelief in him. That was the primary sin of all the cities that Jesus visited. They didn't accept him as the Messiah, but it clearly included more than that. We must never forget that the goal of Jesus's entire teaching ministry was that his hearers would repent. Immediately after his temptation in the wilderness by Satan, at the very beginning of his ministry, Matthew introduces the ministry of Jesus in chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is the exact same message that Matthew tells us that John the Baptist preached in chapter 3, verse 2. for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So like Elijah and Elisha that came before him, Jesus did his miracles, in part anyway, to validate to the people that he did indeed carry the divine authority to be able to call them to repent of their sins. His mighty works were given by God, in part, to reveal that his call to repent of their sins was coming from God. It wasn't his own independent notion. But based on Jesus' condemnation of these cities, their response to his mighty works was basically, ho we'll take your miracles. We're not interested in repenting. You're not our Messiah. In one of the more dramatic statements of Jesus in the Gospels, and of course his ministry is filled with dramatic statements, he calls the curse of God down on these cities for not repenting. That's what he means when he says, woe to you. That's an Old Testament curse formula used by the prophets. Jesus is the great prophet who fulfills all the ministry of the other prophets, and so he does this as well. Later, he curses the Pharisees in the same way. So it's interesting, he saves his curses for the Jews. Jesus is saying that God had weighed the response of these cities to his ministry and had found them worthy of eternal condemnation. That's what this is. This is not the loving discipline of God on his wayward children. No, Jesus is calling down the wrath of God on these cities. This is an absolutely withering divine sentence issued by Judge Jesus here. But his words are not only damning, literally, they also humiliate and shame these cities. That's because Jesus in his condemnation of these cities also unfavorably compares them with three Gentile cities that were synonymous with God-rejecting, wrath-inducing, child-sacrificing paganism. These are some of the most blistering words of judgment in the New Testament. In verse 21, he explains his curses on Chorazin and Bethsaida saying, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities in Phoenicia, which is bordering on Israel. And they were regularly condemned because they were so close to Israel. They were regularly condemned by the Old Testament prophets for the worship of Baals and for all the debauchery that went along with their paganism. Jesus says that if they had witnessed my ministry, these demonically inspired, paganized infidels would have repented of their sins. But these traditional Bible-believing conservative Jewish communities filled with God's chosen people who had repeatedly witnessed Jesus' mighty work, they had refused to repent. Jesus makes the same kind of unfavorable comparison when he speaks about Capernaum. Again, that's his adopted hometown where he knew these people very well. On his own spiritual sensitivity scale, he ranks this respected Jewish community of Capernaum below Sodom, which was, of course, a city emblematic. It was infamous for its evil and perversion, and it was infamous for the judgment, the fiery judgment that God called down on Sodom. He says in verse 23, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Sodom would have repented in sackcloth and ashes, which means, of course, very sincere, deeply heartfelt repentance. But because Capernaum did not repent, they would be brought down to Hades. Okay, Hades is is told and explained in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Speaking of the rich man, after he dies, Jesus says, and in Hades, same word, being in torment, earlier it says, he's in anguish in this flame. Being in torment, because he's in anguish in this flame, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So Jesus is saying that even though God destroyed the earthly city of Sodom with a torrent of fire and brimstone. The city of Capernaum, because they had effectively rejected him, they're going to suffer eternal fiery torment. That's what he's saying here. Jesus said to Capernaum, but I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I mean, we mustn't soft pedal this those people, those Jews in particular, who heard Jesus' pronouncement of this sentence would have been gobsmacked. Their jaws would have hit the floor because Jesus is calling God's judgment down on these good Jewish towns, like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, a judgment far more severe for what God has in store for these Gentile cities that were synonymous for centuries of rebellion against God. That would have sounded to the Jewish ear of Jesus' day like a raving lunatic. Today, this would be like Jesus preaching to an Amish community and declaring that they would enter hell before Las Vegas and New Orleans and San Francisco. That's exactly what it would have felt like. Even more remarkable, however, is what Jesus says next. In verses 25 to 27, after this withering pronouncement of judgment on these Jewish cities that Jesus holds completely responsible for their rebellion against God, Jesus prays a prayer of thanksgiving. And in this prayer of thanksgiving, he emphasizes not the responsibility of these Jews for their sins, He gives thanks for God's sovereign will in concealing the truth about him from these Jewish cities. Verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, "'I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will.'" So in the span of one verse, Jesus dramatically turns from holding these Jewish cities ultimately responsible for their rejection of him for delighting in the fact that God is the one who either hides or reveals the truth about Jesus from people. Now we need to linger here for a moment. So Jesus, by his judgment on these cities, implies that they will be held completely responsible for rejecting Jesus. It's their fault. But immediately after that, he teaches that it's God who decides who he will reveal or conceal Jesus to. Now, to many believers, this back-to-back teaching of human responsibility for sin and divine sovereignty in salvation, they feel like they don't belong together at all. And that's why they twist them. That's what these words say. Matthew makes a point of explicitly linking them together by opening verse 25 with at that time. So he knows the temptation is for the, to pull these apart. He said, no, at the very time he said this, he also said this. So he's explicitly communicating in light of these denunciations of these cities, Jesus says, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So Matthew goes out of his way to force us to feel the tension here. If Jesus is going to thank God for something after this sweeping denunciation, we would expect him to say something more like, thank you, Father, that you have given me the authority to curse these cities because their great sin has earned your just condemnation. Human responsibility. That would have been a true statement. They'd earned the condemnation of God, but that's not where Jesus goes at all. No, Jesus is delighted, he's thanking God over the fact that as the Lord of heaven and earth, the Father used his sovereign power to either hide Jesus's true identity as Messiah, as is implied he did to these cities, or reveal it. Some believers have a very hard time with this doctrine of election that Jesus clearly articulates here, but we must never minimize it. We must never deny it because Jesus delights in it. Jesus is thrilled by this. Thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that this is the way you respond. And if we're to be growing like Jesus, then we need to have a better understanding and a better appreciation for this too, because he thinks this is great. Jesus thanks God because the reason these Jews didn't repent is in part because God had sovereignly chosen not to reveal Jesus to these people. Jesus thanks God because he has hidden these things. And wise and understanding and reveal them to children. So even though in verses 20 to 24, Jesus clearly holds these Jews responsible for their sin and pronounces them fully deserving of condemnation, in verses 25 and 26, he reveals as the ultimate reason for their unbelief that God had hidden the truth about Jesus from them. Now, before we spend some time explaining why it is not unjust for God to do that, we need to see this is not the only place this happens in the New Testament. This is all over the place in the Bible. We've cited before what Jesus says in Mark chapter four. Jesus had just given the parable of the sower, and Mark reveals no one understood what Jesus meant by it, including the 12 disciples. The parables, as you've known, if you've studied them, are difficult to understand. And so the question becomes, why would the greatest teacher who ever lived teach in ways that obscure the truth? because that's what parables do. And Jesus answers that question in Mark four, verse 11. And he said to him, he's speaking to his disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that, and then he quotes Isaiah 6, 9, that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. Okay. (laughs) Why does Jesus teach in parables? He says it was to hide the truth from those who are on the outside. And who are those on the outside? Those are those that God did not want to turn and be forgiven. That's what he says. Now the question is, how on earth is it not unjust for God to be this way? Well, first, the reason he gives in the text is because he's the Lord of heaven and earth. That means that he is free to reveal or conceal to people anything he chooses. He tells Moses in Exodus 33, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Second, and this is very important, we must never get the impression that God is concealing these truths from innocent people who are really hungry for God to reveal the truth to them. That is not the case at all. In fact, in verse 25, Jesus implies why the Jews in these three cities were among those God has hidden the truth from. They represented those who were the wise and understanding. I thank you that you've hidden it from the wise and the understanding, you've concealed it from them. Don Carson says in his commentary, those who pride themselves in understanding divine things are judged. So if you're proud of your spiritual discernment, be careful. Matthew helps us to see that the Jews in these cities were proud of their spiritual insight and understanding into the things of God, and we know that's what he's getting at because of what he says specifically in verse 23 about Capernaum. And he says, "'And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? "'You will be brought down to Hades.'" Now, the Jews who heard Jesus say that would have recognized that he is paraphrasing what God said through Isaiah to the king of Babylon when he taunted him for his pride and arrogance. Listen to it in Isaiah 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. The Jews hearing that would have heard and known that Jesus was comparing the Jews in Capernaum to the arrogant King of Babylon. He uses words that echo what was said by Isaiah. Again, never get the impression that God hides or conceals truth from people who are earnestly seeking after the truth, whether it's the truth about his messianic identity, like we see in Capernaum, or the meaning of the parables, which we saw in Mark chapter four. Paul says in Romans three, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Part of being a sinner is that you don't seek after the truth. You suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The amazing truth of scripture is not that God conceals the truth from those who are deliberately running away from him anyway. The amazing truth of the Bible at the heart of saving grace is that God in his great mercy chooses to supernaturally reveal his truth to some people who are running away from him. These Jews in these three cities were convinced, we're fine. Jesus says they thought themselves to be wise and understanding. Know this, God is free to conceal himself from anyone who is not seeking humbly after him, and no one apart from his sovereign grace is seeking after God. Paul reveals God's value system as it relates to people who God chooses to reveal himself to in 1 Corinthians. He says in verse 26, for consider your calling brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose. What is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose. What is weak in the world to shame the strong, God chose. What is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is the value system of God that explains why he hid the truth from Jesus from these Jews in Galilee. They were proud, and God not only reveals himself to those by his sovereign grace who admit they are not wise, Those are the ones he reveals himself. You're not wise, you're not well-informed. You understand in fact that you're weak and that you're low and that you're foolish and you're despised by the world. That's who God opens up to. In verse 27, Jesus says, he is the agent by which God reveals the Father. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's pretty clear. That's his point. Jesus is the one who ultimately determines who will receive a revelation of the Father. There is tension in the Bible between humanity's responsibility for their sin, which Jesus clearly gives here when he curses these people, and God's sovereign freedom to choose to reveal himself to whoever he wants. Someone asked Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, how do you reconcile the tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty? And Spurgeon said, I don't reconcile friends. They're not opposed to one another if you read the Bible correctly. Just two sets of truths that are parallel. We can't understand how they fit together, but at the end of the line, we're gonna see it but they're there. You can't deny that they're there trying to artificially resolve the tension. You can't do that. You have to take the text for what it says. And we know this because it's all over the Bible, this tension. We see it in what Jesus says about Judas. In Luke 22, he says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom the Son a man is betrayed by whom he's betrayed. In one verse, you get both divine responsibility or divine sovereignty and human responsibility. First, the son of man goes as it has been determined. Jesus is saying, I am going to the cross no matter what. This is God's sovereign preordained will. But that doesn't keep Jesus from holding Judas responsible because he curses him too. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus says that Judas is in hell because his betrayal will send me to the cross. Here the tension between God's sovereign rule and human responsibility. We see the same tension In what Peter preaches to the Jews at Pentecost, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's the tension again, right? On the one hand, Jesus is delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The cross was God's sovereign, unchangeable will for Jesus. But Peter does not give that as a reason to not hold the Jews responsible for their sin. He doesn't say, so because the death of Jesus was sovereignly ordained by God, well, you really had no choice. You had to crucify him, so God's going to give you a warning on this one. No, he doesn't say that. That's what many people want him to say, but he doesn't say that. Peter holds them responsible for killing Jesus through lawless men. That's human responsibility for sin and divine sovereignty over the plan of God. In the same two verses... The point is that Jesus is just being consistent with other scriptures when he says that on the one hand, these three cities in Galilee will be judged by God for their unbelief, and on the other, God hid the truth about Jesus from them because they were wise in their own eyes. Okay, that's the context. Now let's look at 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Three, three truths. First, this is a call to come to Jesus. Not a religion, not a doctrine, and not a system of belief. Jesus has come to me. This is personal. This is a personal coming to the person of Jesus. This is about him. It's his rest, it's his yoke, it's his light burden. It's about learning from gentle and lowly Jesus. The rest for our souls comes from him as we come to him. This is not about technique or method or strategy. This is a personal encounter with the savior. This is about rejecting all other possible means for living in peace and rest, chucking them over the side in favor of Jesus. Second, His call is to those who labor and are weary as opposed to those who are wise and understanding. See, when you read the verses in the context, now you can understand what Jesus means by labor and heavy laden. The Jews in these three cities didn't come to Jesus because they did not feel the burden of laboring to get right with God and stay right with God. They were fine. They had the law, they had the temple, They were the children of Abraham, of all the people on earth. They alone were the wise and understanding ones. Jesus here reveals that it's because Tyre and Sidon and Sodom were not operating under those arrogant lies. That's the reason Jesus can say they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes because they weren't fine. And my ministry would have exposed to them that they weren't fine. For believers, Jesus is calling you to come to him this morning if you're weighed down. And every believer goes through seasons, sometimes long ones, where they're weighed down. When you are feeling exhausted by and downcast over your seemingly never-ending fight for holiness. When you're feeling discouraged by your countless failures and the incessant heaviness on you of your guilty conscience when you're feeling the pressure of a gnawing sense of your worthlessness a worthlessness for which you can produce ample evidence if that's where you are jesus says you come to me you come to me Someone has said that Jesus' call to come to him is like the demand of a father to his child in a burning window, jump to me! Or like the demand of a rich, strong, tender, handsome husband to his unfaithful wife, come home! Or like the demand of a rescue squad that finds you on the point of death, dehydrating after days in the desert, drink this! This is what Jesus expected from those who so clearly witnessed his ministry, but instead they had no sense of grief. They didn't know they were in a burning building. In light of that, our third truth is coming to Jesus alone brings an easy yoke and light burden. The yoke in Jesus' day, and, and Stacy had a wonderful picture up here before, is a wooden bar that fits over the yoke of an ox. It could be for one or two, uh, some beast of burden if it's not an ox. And the, and the yoke enabled the animal to be attached to a trailer or a cart or plow and it transfers the burden of pulling whatever it is it's pulling from the man to the animal. So it's a transfer of the burden. So when we come to Jesus and we put his yoke upon our shoulders, instead of the crushing yoke of the law or rule-based religion, when we put on the yoke of Jesus instead of the crushing burden of our own often oppressive expectations or Satan's condemnation of us, when we put his yoke on its light. And the reason it's light is because Jesus is 100% for those who are humbly seeking after him. For those who are not self-sufficient or self-assured on their theological insight or their spiritual sensitivity or how long they've been a Christian, but instead deeply feel their tremendous weakness, look to Jesus, for those people, he will show them that he is gentle and lowly in heart. For those who are seeking after Jesus alone to have their burdens lifted, Jesus does not come with a scowl of judgment. He comes with a heart filled with love and compassion and tenderness and patience. He says in John 10, 10, that he came that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. In John 15, 11, about his teachings, he says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. If his goal is for us to have an abundant life and that we would share in the fullness of his joy, then coming to him must be a good thing because that's what he wants for us. The lesson of Matthew chapter 11 is clear. For the humble in heart, who deeply sense their need, Jesus is a gentle and humble, soul-satisfying, burden-bearing God. And this is equally true if you've never trusted in Christ, or if you're a long-time believer. If you've never trusted in Christ, you know you're ready to do that and receive salvation only If you feel the great weight of your sins and your failures before a holy God, Jesus never saves someone who comes to him for a ticket out of hell. He never saves anybody for fire insurance. But if you're grieving over your sins, look to Jesus, and in his great mercy, he will save you. If you come to Jesus for any other reason, you will not be saved because that's why he came, to seek and save sinners, people who are broken by their sin and their need for God's forgiveness. And if you're a believer in your spiritual walk, you can relate to being an unfaithful spouse of Jesus, or you need rescue from a burning building, or you're dying of thirst. You can relate to all of that. Come to Jesus. He hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't forgotten you. He still loves you. He's been waiting for you to come to this place where you see that he's your only hope and you're lost without him. Come to him. Trust in him. He's going to give rest to your weary soul. That's a promise. But if, as a professed believer, you're trusting in your Bible knowledge or how many ministries you do in the church or how many years you've been a Christian, don't expect your intimacy to him to return, if you ever had it in the first place. He's gonna continue to let you drift until you give up on your resources, your plan, your strategy, and instead come to him hat in hand. May God grant us, all of us, the grace to give up on our own efforts to find peace and rest and come to him as a little child, so that we might know rest in him for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father, these are some hard truths, and they compel us to get right with you, and getting right with you is being real about our own sin and our own lukewarmness and our waywardness and the fact that we treat you some more like a pal than we do the Lord of Heaven and Earth. Father, I pray that you would do a work of grace in my heart and all of our hearts, that we would be like little children, humble, knowing that we are desperately needy and we only have one place to look. God, thank you that when we do that by your grace, then you show yourself to be gentle and lowly, and you give us a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. Father, we're just so grateful for who you are. Please, Jesus, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, I pray that you'd save them today. And God, if there's somebody here who maybe years ago didn't wanna go to hell and so they prayed a quick prayer and they think they're in, God, I pray that your spirit would help them to see that there is a weight on them Father, I pray for all of us that we would all know Jesus as our burden-bearing Savior, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. If the servers would come forward.